Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everybody. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Guy Marzarati. In this week for Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, she's a former Secretary of Labor, now an L.A. County supervisor who was recently chosen to co-chair California's delegation to the Democratic Party convention. Hilda Solis will join us shortly. But first, Guy, we want to delve into how we got here. That is the name of a five-part series airing this week on KQED's podcast, The Bay. It explores the roots, the history, really, of how it is we got to this point where so many Americans are working so hard and yet barely hanging on, living paycheck to paycheck with little safety net once sickness, layoff, or unexpected bill away from disaster. And it is, of course, a situation made so much worse by the pandemic. KQED's Sam Harnett joins us now. He and two KQED colleagues collaborated on the series. And Sam, welcome to The Breakdown. Hi, Scott and Guy. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you. So this uh, is a very ambitious series that you embarked on, Sam. Uh, What prompted you to do it? I mean, I think really, you know, I've been reporting for the last 10 years covering the intersection of tech and labor, and I met so many workers who had the same questions. Like, how come there are so few options? How come I don't have health care? How come my pay is so low? You know, why don't I have benefits? And uh, when the pandemic started, you know, this was ramped up even more. And I started talking to workers and I was like, you know what? Like, I want to give some answers to these questions. And that sent me, you know, they're not easy, <laughs> easy questions to answer. So, you know, sent me down, sent me down the long, long path of history. So, Sam, in the third part of your series, you talk about this shift the U.S. went through from welfare capitalism to shareholder capitalism. I want to ask you about that in the context of the coronavirus crisis, because it seems like every country, every developed country is facing an economic crisis. But why is the job and employment crisis so much worse here? Yeah, what's interesting, if you look at other countries, their primary concern is the health crisis. And our prime, you know, maybe not our primary concern, but we have the health crisis, and then we have this massive economic crisis. Um, and that transition from welfare to capitalism to shareholder capitalism, it really sort of captured this for me. Uh, you know, there was this brief period after World War II, uh, you know, for like 30 or 40 years, when, when the idea was that corporations should care about more than just profits, that they should care about uh, the well-being of society. And we had a version of welfare capitalism. And it's important to point out, that welfare capitalism was mostly was mostly for white males. There was a lot of, you know, black and brown people and women were excluded. But if you're a white man working in America, you know, between the 30s and the 60s, you were you you were covered. You had benefits and protections. And then in the late 70s and 80s, we shifted to this model where it was, you know, Milton Friedman's greed is good. Uh, the, the the only thing corporations have to care about is the bottom line. And if you're just caring about the bottom line, then if your workers pay is going down or they're not getting benefits, it's not really your problem. 
And and I think that fo- that philosophy over the last 50 years has just led to a chipping away of so many protections and benefits for workers. Um, they just, you know, really feel like they're on their own. You point out in the series, Sam, uh, the air traffic controllers strike and Ronald Reagan making a big deal out of firing them, uh, saying they didn't have the right to strike. How important was that as sort of laying down a marker and weakening unions and kind of sending a signal to workers that, hey, you know, if you don't toe the line or if you don't accept what's being offered to you, you're going to be out of a job? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, that moment uh, I have has always sort of stuck in my mind as important. But every labor historian that I talked to was like, yes, that moment on that morning fundamentally changed the landscape in America. And what happened is, you know, we have the Taft-Hartley Act, which was passed uh, after the New Deal, which greatly weakened unions. And in Taft-Hartley were all these tools that business owners could use to undermine worker power. But those tools for a long time were held in check by public opinion. You know, presidents uh, like Nixon and Carter, you know, they fought with unions, but they never invoked uh, this provision to, to, fire, to fire workers uh, the way that Reagan had. Uh, so that moment really, like Reagan basically proved that, hey, you can take a really aggressive stand with unions and you can use this Taft-Hartley Act to its full extent. And, and the public, you know, the public re-elected, re-elected Reagan. So he got a stamp of approval. And after that, executives and managers, they really use Taft-Hartley to the full extent. I mean, that's why you see things like, like Taft-Hartley makes it legal to show workers anti-union propaganda. Uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s, there, there weren't the kind of videos that you now get shown as an Amazon or a Target or a Walmart worker today. Right. He kind of opened the door up for the private sector to to take that on. I want to bring it back to California politics. Uh, The November ballot will include Proposition 22. It's an issue that you've covered in the past dealing with how to classify workers. Uh, Companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash are putting a bunch of money into this to exclude uh, their employees from being employees uh, rather than independent contractors. And So far, it seems like both campaigns are really saying, no, 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 this is what workers want. This is what workers uh, prefer. How, over the next few months, should voters approach that question? Yeah, well, here's how I always think about this. It depends how you ask the question. I've interviewed a ton of gig workers, Uber and Lyft drivers, Instacart workers. And when you ask them, hey, do you want to not have a boss and be flexible and be able to set your own hours? They're like, yeah, of course, because a lot of them are fitting this around, you know, their primary job, uh, fitting this around taking care of their family. So they want that flexibility. Now, if you ask them, well, don't you think you should have health insurance and benefits and higher pay? They say, absolutely. So I think what we're dealing with here is both sides are asking the questions in different ways. And I think the Uber and Lyft camp is asking, you know, do you want freedom and flexibility? And the answer is yes. And, and the labor advocate camp is saying, don't you wish you were getting paid more and had benefits? And the answer is yes. And I think the real question is, why in society can't we have a bit of both? I mean, why can't we have jobs that provide uh, where you have decent benefits in healthcare and you have some flexibility if you need to take care of a family member, et cetera? Well, there's going to be a whole lot of money spent, yes and no, on the yes and no sides of Prop 22 between now and November. So we'll see where all that comes down. Again, the series is titled How We Got Here. You can hear it all on KQED's podcast, The Bay. You can find it at kqed.org. Sam Harnett, thank you so much. Uh, and to you and The Bay's team, really, for reporting on this really important stuff. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, thanks for having me on, gentlemen. All right, we're going to take a short break right now. And when we return, we'll be joined by L.A. County Supervisor Hilda Solis, You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm 
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randal Fatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Guy Marzarati. Marisa Lagos is away this week, and now we're joined by someone who has a very long resume of public service. It includes stints in both houses of the state legislature, Congress. She was labor secretary to President Obama, and now she's a member of the L.A. County Board of Supervisors. Hilda Solis, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you, Scott and Guy. It's good to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. You bet. Well, so just before the break, we were talking about how hard it is for working class families and individuals to make ends meet these days. And I'm just wondering, you grew up in a big family. There were seven kids. Uh, Your parents were both immigrants. You grew up in L.A. Um, You know, how did your family make it? What what did they do, your parents, to make ends meet? You know, uh, mom and dad uh, worked really hard. They both, uh, you know, were laborers. My father worked in a, a battery recycling plant and was a member of the Teamsters and was a shop steward. My mother later on, after most of the kids were a little bit grown, went to work at a Mattel's assembly uh, line um, and she was a factory worker and you know she was part of the United Rubber Workers, which doesn't even exist anymore. Now they're the steel workers. But I come from a very, very working class family who really believed in in family unity and and you know always sacrificing and always knowing that you know we had to share and everyone had their roles in our household and people had to work hard so that work ethic really comes through i think on our families especially immigrant families and mine you know my mom and dad immigrated from you know foreign countries from mexico and nicaragua and they met in la they met in a history class and you know they raised their kids um they just wanted the best that they could provide, which in in many terms, we didn't even know we were poor, but they worked and strived so hard to uh, provide the best that they could for us. And out of that, I mean, that's really, I think, the almost a typical story here in L.A. County right now. A lot of immigrant families, the district that I represent is about 70 percent Latino. Many are immigrant. Many have mixed households of documented and undocumented. So it's been a really hard um how could I time for our, our working class families, especially those that are essential workers that have to go out their work in cleaning our, our offices, our hotels. Many of these essential workers don't even have health care coverage or very minimal. They have to pay a very high copayment. And some of them are reluctant to go out and get tested. Um, and that's been a real challenge to kind of break down the myths that, hey, this is something that is good for good for us to know so that we can contain the virus. So it's an education experience every single day, every single second. 
Now, speaking of education, I want to ask you uh, about your time at La Puente High School. I read somewhere that you had a counselor who said, you know, maybe you should look into becoming a secretary, maybe go work for the county. I don't know if she meant a cabinet secretary or a county supervisor, <laughs> but, you know, that, that had to have motivated you. Oh, God. It was, it was a male counselor, and those are the ones that you get assigned because of the, the letters in the alphabet, right? So you rarely see them. You rarely have any kind of interaction. That was one counselor, but I also had another uh, teacher and counselor that um, his name is Mr. Sanchez, and he, he actually encouraged me to think about going to college. And I kind of looked at him and said, Mr. Sanchez, how can I do that? I come from a poor family. My mom and dad can't give me uh, $1,000 or not even 500 or anything to send me to college. I, I'm expected to go and be independent and work. And so many of the kids and students of, of my age group at that time were being tracked to go either into a clerical position. So it was really, yeah, they, you know, the guys go to the military and the women go into, you know, low skilled jobs. And um, it, it was just, it was that experience. But if it wasn't for Mr. Sanchez who motivated me and said, Hilda, you have the potential, you have this ability to synthesize information and, and you can do a lot with that. And just think how much more you can do to help your community if you get an education. And at that time when I was growing up, it was in the mid-70s. So all I could see on TV when my dad would come home from work, he'd put on Walter Cronkite. And you'd see all these numbers of body figures coming back from Vietnam. Then you saw the rioting in the streets. And I was, I was just in, you know, barely in high school when I started to see how the, those disparities exist in our community and why people of color, myself included, didn't have opportunities to have a better education, to have a better lifestyle, and to have the same kinds of jobs that, you know, everyone else had. And I, it, was, it, was, it was somewhat segregated at the time. And I was very fortunate, though, that Mr. Sanchez kept on me and actually came to my home, met my parents, encouraged them to help me keep motivated and to help fill out my paperwork, my financial aid. And lo and behold, I was admitted to Cal Poly Pomona, and I received a financial aid and work study, so I did have to work part-time, but that made me a better person. And as a result of that, um, I was able to then influence my younger siblings, and all, all three of them, all women, went to UCLA and graduated. One had a PhD, two are, are electrical engineers, and they're all female. Wow. Uh, if you're just joining us, by the way, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati, and we're talking with L.A. County Supervisor Hilda Solis. And Supervisor, throughout your career, you have really been interested in and focused on and advocated for the environment. And I know that you grew up in a town that had a Superfund site. There were a number of landfills. You lived very close to a very large landfill. Tell us what impact that had on the way you think about not just the environment, but environmental justice. Right. Well, um, you know, at that time, that was when I just got elected to the assembly in 1992. And uh, we lived adjacent to about a mile away from one of the largest landfills this side of the Mississippi was known as the Puente Hills Landfill. And, you know, we had heard about stories about cancer clusters and contaminated water wells and things of that nature. And as I became more engaged and involved in my work in the assembly, I got on the toxics committee. I got on the health committees and started hearing more about why there was so much disparate treatment in low-income communities. And, you know, 
what came first didn't matter. The fact is you needed to have better regulations and people needed to know what surrounded them. And it really came to light to me uh, during the, during the um, year that I got elected in the assembly and started working on trying to figure out how we could create buffer zones to make sure that we could separate communities so we wouldn't be impacted by this by whatever contaminants would be spewed in the air, but also in our water, and to give more proper notice. We uh, worked on trying to get together then in 1994-96 in um, the environmental justice legislation, and I actually looked at what President Clinton at the time had put forward in an executive order, and I thought, we need to codify this. And it took several attempts uh, to get it through, but we finally got it signed. And at that time, when it finally got signed, was with uh, Governor Gray Davis. And, and to this day, right now, we're still faced with environmental justice issues. One of the, one of the most um, toxic facilities was shut down like five years ago, and that was Exide, a battery recycling plant. Let me just stop you because I know, I know your dad worked in a battery recycling plant. Was that the same one? No, this, but it's called Quimetco. That's in the city of industry, very close to the uh, Puente Hills landfill, okay? So when you figure it out, you start to see patterns of where low-income people that can only afford so much to buy their uh, properties and households, it's typically around places that many people don't want to be associated with. And unfortunately, we see a lot of immigrants and a lot of working class people that live in those surrounding areas. Quimetco was in the city of industry. That was only a mile away from my household. My father did work there, and he eventually, uh, he eventually, um, you know, was was impacted in terms of lead blood poisoning and had several issues as he as he uh, matured. And um, it was very sad to see what happened because many of his colleagues that worked alongside him that were healthy, young Latino men uh, ended up uh, dying of cancer. And it was just Mm. very, very curious because no one really put that all together. You know what I mean? The linkages, they didn't have, we didn't have the information. So um, Quimeco is still open. They want to expand their facility. They're probably one of the last ones here in, in this side of the country. But uh, the communities around there are now better equipped with information, and they want to close it down. And so you mentioned you ran for the assembly in 92. Two years later, uh, you ran and won a seat in the state Senate. Today, we have six or seven Latina state senators, but you were the first in California history. Did you did you know that when you were running? And what did that mean to you? You know, um, I didn't look at it in that perspective. It was more about my wanting to be out there and really just try to do the best I could to represent my my district, which was largely Latino. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to work hard to do the best I can and always keeping uh, in the front of my mind the constituents that I represented. You uh, ran for Congress, and you actually ran against a Democratic incumbent, Marty Martinez, who I think had voted for NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Act. And uh, party insiders didn't want you to challenge him because he was seen as a, you know, a solid Democrat. But you easily won. You knocked him off in the primary very easily. What did you learn from that experience? You know, the power of people, because, you know, people get can get sedentary, right? I mean, you see it happening right now in Congress where you have uh, people from the same party running against folks. And I, you look at AOC, right? That That's, you know, the, the closest thing I can compare compare what I went through. 
I, you know, it was a lot of work. I was blown off by the party at that time. In fact, I think Marty Martinez, I'll never forget the night of the election. Um, he was like, oh, I don't need to be spending a lot of money because she's not going to make it. And all by polling <laughs> and information is telling me that I'm going to do fine. Well, that night when the cameras were at our headquarters, we had like 1,200 people. When the cameras were shown <laughs> at his headquarters, he had less than 20. And then he left the party. Wow. <laughs> so and then he left the party and registered as a Republican. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll, oh, Lord, help us. <laughs> I want to fast forward just a little bit. Uh, 2009, President Barack Obama takes office and selects you as his secretary of labor take us inside that conversation you had how did that appointment come about you know i didn't expect to be asked uh, to serve in the cabinet in fact i almost thought it wasn't real when i got an initial call i thought i don't know um i better think about this and my first thought was to call my sisters my three younger sisters that all went to college i said what do you guys think and they said you know what hilda even if, you know, okay, maybe you don't think you're going to get anywhere with this, but why don't you just try it? I mean, at least you won't regret it, right? You can just say, hey, I tried it. And I go, ah, okay. So I did. So I got flown out to Chicago, got in an interview. It was interviewed with, with him, and it was already late. It was like the the week before, two weeks before Christmas. I, we, I interviewed with him, and it was he and I in a room. It was, you know, empty. It was clearly a campaign transition office because it wasn't a lot of furniture, but there was a long coffee table between us when he was on one end of it and I was sitting at the other. And I'll never forget, he uh, had a basketball in his hand. And I heard how, heard how he liked <laughs> basketball, right? A bunch of, he liked to do his hoops and all that. And he had the basketball. And while we're talking, he was, he was um, strutting it right there on the side, sitting in his chair. And I thought, I thought to myself, oh, my God, this is going to be hard. He's not even paying attention. He's going to make you shoot for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was already kind of thinking, oh, God, okay, this is just formality here, right? And, um, yeah. and then he started asking me questions. He says, well, Hilda, you know, you're a legislator and all that, but you've never been an administrator to the size of the Department of Labor. So tell me, how would you, how would you address some of the issues that you'll, that you'll face there? How do you run? What's your style? What's your management style? And I said, well, you know, something that I have always done, and that is to surround myself with people that know more than I do and people that are good-hearted. And because I've had to go through my own experiences in my own life, being a Latina, being a woman who's younger, being someone who comes from a background that isn't privileged, you've always had to prove yourself three times over. And when I said that, that's when he looked at me and his eyes widened and his grin was there. And, and then after he kind he of recognized ended, that sentiment. Yeah. And I think it, it resonated with him because he, that's his story, right? Same thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, so you were labor secretary, and I, I just want to ask you, you know, we're in this situation now where the, we have an election, of course, in November, and the unemployment rate is somewhere between, I don't know what it is exactly today, but between, you know, 11 and 15 percent or so. And, of course, so many of the those hit hardest are Latino, African-American people of color. Assuming that there is a change uh, in Washington and uh, Joe Biden gets elected, what what do you think would be like the top priority for the next labor secretary and for the president to focus on when it comes to working class folks? I think it's going to be an immediate injection of uh, a stimulus funding 
similar to what I think Obama and Biden did. And he is well versed in that because that was part of his role under the, uh, you know, Obama administration. He was the go-to guy on restoring and and retooling the middle class. I spent many, many, many days traveling with him and with the staff and working out how we would put uh, the automobile industry back together, okay? Just imagine that. You go into an area, Flint, Michigan, or wherever, and, and you see shattered businesses and houses, and the factory that sustained them for many decades is now gone. How do you rebuild it? So we worked on those things. So what he's going to do, in my opinion, is going to inject uh, the funding that's necessary to create and recreate new jobs, not just in manufacturing, but also in green technology, and also addressing the pandemic in a way that we that this incapable president is not even able to plan out. I mean, he doesn't have an agenda. Joe Biden has an agenda. And I know he's going to infuse funding in infrastructure projects, which is going to immediately put a lot of people to to work, construction workers, IBW, but also helping to transform how we prepare for new jobs, because we're going to lose a lot of jobs, and we already have. So what do we do with those lower-skilled fo- folks that need to be then maybe in a, in a program that can give them a certificate in a matter of six weeks or six months as opposed to four years and get them back in so that we don't lose sight of how we can get people back on their feet. Supervisor, I know we want to ask about the campaign in a second. I do just want to ask another question about that unemployment. It's something that, you know, countries, I touched on this at the top, countries around the world are getting hit by this COVID-19 crisis economically, but it seems like unemployment is uniquely bad in America and and uniquely worse among Latino and black communities. I'm wondering if you think it's time to, you know, the next downturn, move on from the unemployment insurance system we have. Are there different ways we can be approaching this so it's not just this massive job loss every time we see an economic downturn? Well, there are different things that can be done. I mean, there are also opportunities where you can help provide assistance to current small business owners or business owners to keep some of their workers on. And you extend unemployment, but it goes to the employer and partly goes to the worker so that they can get retrained, so that they still have a safety net there, okay? Meanwhile, the the economy repairs itself. And then there's other things that we can do by making sure that we infuse projects uh, funding project, funding projects like transportation and infrastructure, that can immediately provide a, a stimulus because Lord knows we have crippling libraries, hospitals, bridges, freeways, things like that that have not been addressed. And that can be another part of our stimulus and our recovery and making sure that we're investing in green technology and growing that. We started it, and then as soon as Trump came in, he kind of cut it off. And now we need to go back to that because I still think that all of us and even more so now in the pandemic, we know that um, part of what we're experiencing has to do with uh, our climate. And that is also something that I know is very much on young people's mind and making sure they have opportunities to continue their education, lifelong learning, and also ridding them of or saddling, not saddling them with those big loans and really being more considerate of that because we do have to support our next our next phase, our next uh, labor force. And many of them are people who are really struggling right now. 
Supervisor, we're getting short on time, but I do want to ask an election question. You were recently selected, along with a couple of members of Congress, Barbara Lee of Oakland and Rokana from the South Bay, to lead the state's delegation to the Democratic Convention. And I want to ask you about Latino voters, because Bernie Sanders, you know, he won California. He did much better than Biden among Latinos in California and Nevada. Uh, Nevada. And I'm wondering, um, you know, what do you think the Biden campaign should learn from what Bernie Sanders did? And, and what are you advising them? investment in our young people in different uh, methods of social media and making sure that we actually have people on the ground that reflect and and are are instrumental in helping us drive that discussion and that are also Latino. And that, believe me, so far, I think um, he's not doing too bad in terms of hiring people up now across the state. In fact, some of the other Democratic uh, former candidates that were running against him have now come on board. Many of them were very much talented Latinos, and a lot have come on. So I think that it's 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 mirroring and bringing that together, and really synthesizing and getting to where we need to be, and having the very targeted uh, Latino voices heard because. Someone who you're targeting in East L.A. is going to be very different from the person in San Antonio, Texas, and very different from the person in in, uh, New York. So you have to have the collage. And, and, you know, Latinos are not monolithic. We're very different. I mean, I happen to be Nicaraguan and Mexican, but I grew up more Mexican. And, you know, so I'm just saying it's knowing how to focus and target your population and being able to bring bring about the discussion about equity for everyone, putting value in health care, safety and protection in the workplace, making sure that there's access to education and health care. Right now, that's that's like primo talking about health care and, and not allowing for Trump to destroy and pull back the uh, Affordable Care Act. All right. Well, Supervisor Hilda Solis, thank you so much for joining us and for you know your many years of service. Uh, thanks so thanks, much. Thanks, Supervisor. Thank you. That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Erica Aguilar. Here today from Marisa Lagos, I'm Guy Marzarati. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Guy Marzarati. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Marisa Lagos returns next week. We'll see you then, everybody. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. <laughs>